This podcast is brought to you by the film Ezra from Bleecker Street, directed by Tony Goldwyn with an incredible ensemble that includes Robert De Niro, Bobby Cannavale, and Whoopi Goldberg. Ezra is a funny and endearing story about Max, a divorced father struggling to co-parent his autistic son, Ezra. When faced with difficult decisions about the future, they embark on a cross-country road trip that has a transcendent impact on both their lives. Deadline calls Ezra a touching testament to the power of love. In theaters May 31st. Pampers Cruisers 360 is the must-have diaper to help keep your baby from taking it right off, which, if you've experienced this, can lead to complete chaos. With its 360-degree stretchy waistband that moves with your baby for a comfortable fit, your active baby can move freely. Think of it as baby yoga pants. Cruisers 360 offers a gap-free fit and has a blowout barrier at the back of the diaper to help stop any unwanted disasters. The best part? That stretchy waistband makes it so easy to change your wiggly baby, who is always on the move and can't be stopped. Just rip the sides to remove and roll it up with the disposal tape on the back. Voila! Pampers Cruisers are available in sizes 3 to 7 and now feature fun new prints. Pair with new Pampers Free and Gentle Wipes, made from 100% plant-based cloth that grips the mess without fear of tearing. With Free and Gentle, mess meets its match. For trusted protection, trust Pampers, the number one pediatrician-recommended brand. Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Hi, this is Laura Vanderkam. I'm a mother of five, an author, journalist, and speaker. And this is Sarah Hart Unger. I'm a mother of three, a practicing physician, and blogger on the side. We are two working parents who love our careers and our families. Welcome to Best of Both Worlds. Here we talk about how real women manage work, family, and time for fun. From figuring out childcare to mapping out long-term career goals, we want you to get the most out of life. Welcome to Best of Both Worlds. This is Laura. In this episode, Sarah is going to be interviewing Dr. Kathleen Smith, who is a licensed therapy with a PhD in counseling, is also the author of the book, Everything Isn't Terrible. So Sarah, why don't you tell us a little bit about why you found Dr. Smith? Yes. So a blog reader actually recommended her book to me when I was going through some period of overwhelm. I don't remember. Actually, when the initial recommendation came in, I think it was around my big career transition and a lot of big feelings I was having in 2022 around changing things around and making some really big decisions and going through some tough things. But I kind of forgot about the recommendation and had it in the back of my mind. But then when I had another kind of slightly rocky period, which was nothing big, it was just like kind of struggling to find our family rhythm after travel and just feeling incredibly behind with everything. I wasn't used to taking a whole two weeks away. And it turns out it's like something you, you know, have to learn how to deal with, I guess. And so I was like, you know, I should read that Everything Isn't Terrible book that someone recommended to me a year ago. 
And I just found it really, really accessible and warm. And it's like a book that addresses anxiety, but not at the like full on clinical level, like at the level that just many of us are going to experience at various times, has a lot of practical solutions and good examples in there. So I really liked it. And I linked to it on my blog, theshoebox.com. And then I got an email from the author, which is like just the most wild thing that like this happens in this day and age that you can connect to someone that way. But I guess she saw the traffic coming from the shoebox.com and was like, who is this? So then when she wrote me, I was like, would you like to come on Best of Both? Actually, I think she said, I'm a Best of Both Worlds listener. Like, I know you. And then I said, would you like to come on? So I was so excited. So, yeah. That is really awesome. Yeah, I know it. It's fun when things turn into a connection that's out there. I mean, people are like, oh, I saw this, and then they reach out. And, you know, I encourage people to send those random emails, right? <laughs> like, uh, you know, Sarah has a blog, so obviously people can see if she's linking to them. But, you know, if you read something by someone you like, you know, send an email saying you do. And often, like, people will respond um, because, you know, it's cool to make a connection in the world with somebody who's interested in the same topic. So, yeah. Yes, you can email us anytime. Email us anytime. That is true. We always (laughs) love to hear. And maybe if you think we're terrible, you can keep that to yourself. But if you have constructive feedback, (laughs) we're open to that. Yeah, yeah. Let me just say that she has an excellent book title because (laughs) you're like, the title is Everything Isn't Terrible. You're like, well, what's your book about? Well, the fact that everything isn't terrible. Well, okay. There's no, no ambiguity there. So big shout out for that one. It was a great title. It is a great title. So for you, any particular periods in your life when you find things extra stressful and might benefit from reading something called Everything Isn't Terrible? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I mean, I um, I always find book launch times to be a little bit stressful for me. And it's partly because you want to do everything you can. And then you also have to acknowledge that there is a lot that is out of your control. I mean, maybe not if you're like Oprah writing a book or something, then then you have the ability or, you know, any celebrity has some ability to get on stuff. But, you know, even then their books can tank too. people can not like them and be like, well, that just didn't do anything for me. And next thing you know, like or big news happens, right? Like if there's a huge news thing that happens and your book just came out, your book's going to get buried and nobody's going to hear about it. And there is nothing you can do about it. Like you worked hard on this thing for years and put it out there and you think of can't. all the spring 2020 books, uh, and the like, spring 2020 books, like, you know, everything they had planned in terms of like live events or anything like that. It just didn't work. And it wasn't that they didn't write good books or anything. And so, you know, sometimes I, um, I get a little, uh, the role of luck in this is huge. And some people get very lucky hits first time up at bat and, think they've done something brilliant, but often there's not a whole lot of difference between that book and something that came out in spring 2020. I I didn't have a book come out in spring 2020, but for people who did, I really felt for them because in many cases they had excellent books, but they didn't get that initial thing. Now, of course, if it is an excellent book, obviously over time, sometimes it can find its audience and grow. And that's, that's awesome. But anyway, that's a different thing. So I'm always in a little like tense mood about that and feel like, you know, I haven't done X, Y, or Z or, you know, haven't been able to guarantee X, Y, and Z, even if I've been doing a ton of stuff. So, yeah. It probably just feels like never enough, very much out of your control. And also that feeling of judgment. I mean, I know, like, I think the first time I experienced that was when I first launched a course and I was like, oh my God, I'm asking like people to like decide if they want me or not. And like, I guess that's similar to buying a book and it can be a little scary. A little scary. I mean, I I guess I would 
put a little bit of space between it. They're not buying you. <laughs> They're buying <laughs> a product you are offering. Correct. And so people can think Sarah is a wonderful, awesome person. And then maybe one of Sarah's products is maybe not as good as all the other ones and people don't want it or, you know, it's not quite as compelling. Like not right for them. It wasn't right for them. Right. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So it totally. has nothing to do with your worth as a person, which I think is one of those things that probably comes out and everything isn't terrible, right? A hundred percent. Yeah. All right. Well, let's hear what Kathleen has to say about this. And maybe she can convince all of us that everything isn't terrible. So I am here with Dr. Kathleen Smith, who is the author of Everything Isn't Terrible, which is probably a very timely topic for right now, as lots of us have things on our mind and the news cycle is a little bit more stressful than it even usually is, which is pretty stressful to start with. So Kathleen, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me, Sarah. And I understand that you previously were a Best of Both Worlds listener. Is that true? Yes, I was just saying that it is my one of my personal accountability tools for paying attention to, <laughs> to where my time is going and what's important to me. It's always a good reminder. <laughs> that makes me so happy. And honestly, like I promise we didn't plant that. This was just really serendipitous and awesome. And sometimes our paths collide like that. So Kathleen, your book hit me at a really at the right time. I think someone had recommended it to me like a year prior. But then when I picked it up, I really needed it. Who did you write this book for and why did you write Everything Isn't Terrible? Well, it's for humans, but (laughs) in particular, I think two groups of folks. One, for folks who just want to know what a therapist is thinking, what's the lens they're using? What's a theory that's guiding them as they think about people's challenges? In everyday terms, it's accessible to anybody. And then also folks who are just really hard on themselves about being stressed, being anxious, (laughs) letting their sort of automatic behaviors get the best of them. And my goal is to give people a way of thinking about themselves that's a little bit kinder, a little bit more able to help people see how their behaviors exist in the natural world as well, where they're not necessarily (laughs) dysfunctional or a diagnosis or something that needs to be fixed. It's just humans doing human things. Because some people, I think, can be harder on themselves about this stuff than others. So, And I'm guessing, was a lot of it gleaned from your personal practice? Because you're, are you still actively seeing clients? I am, you know, but you have to be very careful when you write about people. You don't want to tell the exact story because that doesn't respect their confidentiality. <laughs> so it's an interesting challenge of combining a couple different people who have similar stories, but then changing changing the details so that nobody's going to go, wait a second, (laughs) she's writing about me or she's writing about my sister, you know, but that still honors the truth behind it. So yeah, it's, I love telling these stories and, and the challenges that people are up against because we see ourselves in, in these stories as well, I think. Yes. I mean, when you read something like this, you're like, we, people are, much more alike than we are different, I think. And reading something like you sharing these different vignettes that have so many common threads, I think, underlines that really well. Now, one of the underpinnings of your work and that you talk about a little bit in the beginning of the book that I was not familiar with is Bowen theory. Can you tell our listeners what that is? And to me, it struck me as slightly different, but sort of similar to what I know of as cognitive behavioral therapy. So I guess, maybe explain what it is and maybe some of the similarities and differences. Yeah, so I'll give you the very brief version, even though I could talk about this all day. (laughs) So 
Murray Bowen, who is a psychiatrist, was a psychiatrist who really wanted a way of thinking about humans that connected them to evolution in the natural world. Back in the day, every psychiatrist is trained in psychoanalysis, right? They're learning about Freud. That's their way of thinking about things. And he wasn't really on board with that. He said, you know, I don't think humans are these mystical creatures that we kind of portray them to be. <laughs> I think a lot of what we do, you might see chimpanzees doing or bees or prairie dogs, you know, we are social creatures and we operate in ways together in groups to help keep things steady. So what if there were a way of thinking about our anxious behaviors, not as maladaptive, but actually is quite useful and adaptive, for better or worse? <laughs> and if people could see themselves in these, this way, would it help them maybe calm down a little bit or get a little bit more objectivity when they're thinking about their family, you know, or their work? And they could say, well, what's my part in all this? <laughs> what do I want to do differently can I be a little bit more of a grown-up in this situation? And that could be useful for people. And so he had this idea that you could sort of develop a science of human behavior by looking at the family. And so he was one of the fathers of family psychotherapy. Although I use Bowen theory with individuals as well. It's not just a, a type of family therapy. I think there are definitely some similarities to CBT. I think CBT is is very technique focused, which I think is one of the reasons it's it's quite popular. Um, it's something that people can kind of take and practice and use that's very practical. Whereas I think with Bowen theory, not that it's not practical, but it, it's thought of more as a lifelong endeavor. This is a way of thinking about human relationships not, it's not the way or the only way, but it's a way of thinking about human relationships and how people can maybe manage their anxiety a little bit more thoughtfully when they go home for Thanksgiving or <laughs> when their kid is losing it, right? And that's been really helpful for me personally, and that's why I use it in my practice. And there is a lot of discussion, speaking of going home for Thanksgiving, which actually that's timely too, because this episode is going to air probably like late October, and the holidays are approaching. So actually, this is quite timely. You talk a lot about the importance of those primary and oldest relationships, like the one we have with our siblings and our parents. And I did find that interesting because that did differ from a lot of other kind of books in this realm that I've looked at before. Why do you and why does Bowen Theory consider that is so important? And how can people work on those challenges? Like, what would you say to people already thinking and spiraling about maybe having more of that family time coming up. Sure. Well, I always love to ask people, how long can you be with your family before you regress to your teenage self? You know, is it 24 hours, 48? Maybe it's a lot less than <laughs> these forces, these sort of predictable ways of relating to each other. You can see them in any relationship, but the closer you are to somebody, the more automatic they're going to be. You know, I'm an overfunctioner. I love to do things for people that they can do for themselves. <laughs> I'm a helper. That's why I have the job that I do, right? But if I go home, that is sort of magnified or amplified even more so, right? I am more likely to do something for my dad when I don't necessarily need to. You're just more allergic to the people you're often the closest to. And it's not that those have to be the relationships you work on, but I think people find that they get sort of more mileage out of them because they're a little bit tougher to think and act for yourself in the middle of all that 
togetherness. Uh, so people often find it useful, you know, if they can go home for a holiday or spend some time with family and kind of be like a a naturalist or an anthropologist. Can you watch what people do when the anxiety gets dialed up? And then all of a sudden you're you're curious about it, right? And that is very different than being just frustrated by people or annoyed by them. And so if people can kind of put on that researcher hat, I think they often find that it's <laughs> it's a little easier uh, to be interested in people than maybe you usually are. So that's the assignment I usually give folks when they go home for the holidays. So fascinating and probably useful for a lot of us. I love that. And, you know, there's like an element of mindfulness of that, right? Like, because you're like, oh, I'm just going to like observe. But also, I feel like hearing you say that there's like a self-compassionate piece as well, because you're like, well, this is hard and we do regress and we're animals and we have these social challenges and like, maybe that's okay or normal. And like, how do I make the best of it versus this is all a failure. Everyone sucks. You know, the end. (laughs) Absolutely. Just to give you a quick example, I can think of a couple years ago, I was at my grandmother's house. And this is, you know, she was in her 90s, and I'd lost my cell phone. And I, I just casually mentioned that I couldn't find it. And of course, everyone immediately jumps up and is like, diving under couches and anxiously looking for my phone. And I'm just going, guys, I, I got it. I can find it. <laughs> I'm capable. <laughs> You know, but I think Bowen theory was useful to in that moment because I could go, okay, here we go. I'm even mildly distressed and everyone starts to try and calm me down and overfunction for me, right? And that's really interesting to pay attention to. That's a different way of thinking about it than, oh my goodness, what is with these people? They will not give me a break. <laughs> I love it. No, so interesting and so timely. Well, how about flipping the script from thinking about our own parents and going home to thinking about our parenting, which often brings up plenty of anxiety and self-judgment, anxiety about how our kids are turning out, anxiety about, are we doing this right? Anxiety about like, am I giving my kid the tools they need to succeed in this scary new world or whatever people are thinking? So how are some ways that you help people? I don't think there was a parenting chapter specifically. I'm trying to think there was like dating, relationships, but I'm sure you work with many clients that face these things and you are a parent yourself, I believe. So I am. Yeah. Give us some tools for those common challenges. Yes. Well, I had, when I was writing this book, I had just had my daughter. So I felt a little presumptuous to include a parenting chapter. I said, let's give this a little time. Uh, But yes, I do work with a lot of parents and grandparents also, which is a lot of fun. And my next book will have more about parenting. But um, we're up against the culture. We live in a child-focused society. So much of our culture encourages us to put a very anxious focus on our kids. And I just want to acknowledge that that's what we're up against as parents. And what does it take for a person to make a project out of themselves as a parent? One of my colleagues who's in Bowen Theory as well, her name is Dr. Jenny Brown. She she uses this statement, which I find really useful. You know, how do you make a project out of yourself versus your kid? How do you manage your own distress when your child is upset? Can you develop your own principles as a parent versus just grabbing a bunch of books? Resources and, and books can be certainly helpful, But also, what's your own thinking about what it is you're trying to do here? That might change over time. That's okay. But so often, we just don't take that time to sit down and ask ourselves, what am I trying to do here? 
what is within my control? <laughs> Can I see that there are, th- it's not just on me. There are things my child will do that invite my overfocus and my overfunctioning for them. And that's also just what humans do. And so <laughs> it's not about blaming any one person. In particular, we're, we're pretty hard on moms. So how do we see the whole system working? Can you think about what you do when the child is fighting with the other parent or they're having an argument and they pull you into that triangle? How do you manage yourself in that? You know, that's a lot of what I'm helping think about is helping parents think about what's their part in this whole system. And can they be a little bit more thoughtful and how useful that is for a kid to have a our kids to have a parent who is trying to hang in there and manage their anxiety in a more responsible way, that does a lot, more more than any strategy or parenting technique. And probably certainly more than looking to the external as to like, where are the perfect examples that I need to be, quote, keeping up with? So it's a great reminder that the internal focus probably is the place to start and linger a little bit rather than the outside. Well, we're going to take a quick break and talk a little bit about work and news and some other stuff. So we'll be right back. This podcast is brought to you by the new film Ezra from Bleecker Street, directed by Tony Goldwyn and with an incredible ensemble cast that includes Robert De Niro, Bobby Cannavale, Whoopi Goldberg, Rose Byrne, Rain Wilson, and Vera Farmiga, along with newcomer William A. Fitzgerald. The film is an endearing and often funny story about Max, a divorced father and stand-up comedian living with his father and struggling to co-parent his autistic son, Ezra. When forced to confront difficult decisions about the future, Max and Ezra embark on a cross-country road trip that has a transcendent impact on both their lives. Ezra is an endearing and often funny exploration of a family determined to find their way through life's complexities with humor, compassion, and heart. Deadline calls the film a touching testament to the power of love. IndieWire says it's funny and moving. And according to Next Best Picture, Ezra approaches autism with heart and authenticity. Only in theaters nationwide, May 31st. Pampers Cruisers 360 is the must-have diaper to help keep your baby from taking it right off, which, if you've experienced this, can lead to complete chaos. With its 360-degree stretchy waistband that moves with your baby for a comfortable fit, your active baby can move freely. Think of it as baby yoga pants. Cruisers 360 offers a gap-free fit and has a blowout barrier at the back of the diaper to help stop any unwanted disasters. The best part? That stretchy waistband makes it so easy to change your wiggly baby, who is always on the move and can't be stopped. Just rip the sides to remove and roll it up with the disposal tape on the back. Voila! Pampers Cruisers are available in sizes 3 to 7 and now feature fun new prints. Pair with new Pampers Free and Gentle Wipes made from 100% plant-based cloth that grips the mess without fear of tearing. With free and gentle, mess meets its match. For trusted protection, trust Pampers, the number one pediatrician-recommended brand. Today's episode is sponsored in part by Thrive Cosmetics. I am a speed demon when it comes to my makeup routine. I have approximately five minutes, or maybe three, between showering and starting my routine of getting the kids out the door for school. And so I'm always looking for products to keep things super streamlined and easy for my everyday look. Thrive Cosmetics for years has been part of that. 
I've discussed the Brilliant Eye Brightener before, which is a serious workhorse for making me look more awake. But lately, I'm also super into their Liquid Lash Extensions Mascara. It's a tubing mascara that lengthens lashes and is super easy to remove as well, which is key because my makeup removal routine is just as streamlined. You can feel great about shopping at Thrive because for every product purchased, Thrive Cosmetics donates products and funds to help communities thrive. So refresh your everyday look with Thrive Cosmetics, luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 10% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com slash best of. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S dot com slash best of, B-E-S-T-O-F, for 10% off your first order. All right, we are back, and I'm here still with Dr. Kathleen Smith, and we are going to talk a little bit about the workplace, since this is Best of Both Worlds, and we've covered some parenting stuff, so now it's time to talk about work, and I loved this section of the book. There are a lot of like specific examples. There's even a whole chapter dedicated to your terrible boss. I am not saying that applies to me or has applied to me, but can be very useful info for people in different scenarios. So, and difficult coworkers too, all these sticky things at work. So what are kind of the common things that you tend to recommend when somebody is suffering in their job environment? Well, a lot of the work that I do helps people look at the patterns. You know, what are the quick ways that you try and keep things calm or that other people try and keep things calm in a workplace. And often you will see these same patterns that you see in the family, right? Maybe, you know, I mentioned overfunctioning. Maybe there's some people who are, are really big on overfunctioning for others and they're burning out. They're taking on responsibilities that aren't theirs. You know, another a common pattern would be triangles, right? So the more stress there is in an office or workplace, the more triangles you're going to see. And it, just a simple definition, a triangle is like when there's tension between two people, you pull in a third person, you maybe you complain to them or vent to them, or you gossip, or you use them to deliver the message to your boss that you don't want to deliver, right? And triangles aren't necessarily good or bad, but I think it's useful to pay attention to how we use other people at work to sort of circumvent or avoid working on the relationships that are a little bit more tense or anxious. When do I need to have, in Bowen theory, what's called having a little more self, you know, (laughs) when do I need to have a little more self and how I respond to this person who's kind of rubbing me the wrong way or generating some tension. You know, I'm not saying you always have to move closer to people. Sometimes the opposite (laughs) is true. But, you know, how do you not be one more sort of cog in the system who's just anxiously passing the anxiety on to the next person? And that goes back to what I just said about parenting, right? Can I manage this in a little bit more of a responsible way? Maybe that means being honest with people. Maybe that means saying what I can and cannot do rather than pretending like I can do it and then trying to bail out later. (laughs) Or maybe I don't go home and vent to my spouse and then I feel good enough about it that I just go back in there the next day and do the same thing, right? And so often at work, people really get caught up in being over-responsible with others. We're very focused on other people's immaturity and what they're doing wrong. And I'm sure they give us plenty of examples (laughs) But uh, going back to that question of who am I trying to be here, how do I be responsible for myself in this anxious environment? 
and what is not my responsibility? I think getting really clear about that, maybe even making a list can be useful for folks. Those, I mean, those are just a few things I think of with work. No, that's great. I mean, thinking about the what is not my responsibility makes me think of a an episode we did a while back on like non-promotable activities and how, you know, women in particular face a lot of pressure sometimes to do those things or to put on certain appearances, but getting at the core of like, what what am I here for? What am I trying to achieve? Could be really helpful and probably healthier <laughs> than the alternative. So I like that. All right, the news cycle. This is a timely one. I did we did not know there would be so much going on in the news when we scheduled this interview. My everything isn't terrible had nothing to do with the news. It had to do with like hormones and stuff. But I will say the stuff going on, and if you go to NewYorkTimes.com or CNN.com, it's very anxiety provoking to many right now. So many acute conflicts going on. And then there's also kind of like those longer term nagging thoughts of despair that a lot of people have. And I feel like some of those voices are getting appropriately louder and louder. And yet, we still have to function, we still get to live. And I thought this book is really great at providing some perspective. And as people are struggling with this right now, and I know many who are, what are some strategies we can bring to the table in processing all of this stuff coming at us? Yeah, well, what's useful for me in using Bowen theory is this idea that you see the same patterns in society that you would see in an anxious family. It's They're a little harder to spot sometimes. But you know, what if people do when you dial up the anxiety. I mean, some of these things I've already just mentioned, right? They become over-involved with how everyone else is responding to a crisis or a tragedy or a challenge, right? It's easy to get focused on other people's behaviors, right? Or you might distance and not want to have anything to do with it at all. People do that at fam- in families too, right? <laughs> Or you might feel so helpless that you just anxiously borrow what somebody else is doing or how they're responding without really thinking about it for yourself and that sort of groupthink process, right? So to me, what a person can do is ask two questions. And I I mentioned these just a minute ago, but how do I want to be responsible for myself right now? That could be, I'm going to sit down and learn about this topic, or I'm going to figure out what I believe. Or I'm going to put my phone down or out of the room at night. And that is one way of being responsible for myself because we cannot respond to complex problems when we've been doom scrolling and are anxious and overwhelmed, right? And the second question is, how do I want to be responsible to others? Note that's different than being responsible for others. We're not responsible for other people, except maybe our children, (laughs) if they're minors, But being responsible to people is, you know, how do I want to show up in these important relationships or in relationships with people I don't know or have never met or across the world, right? I think that those are two useful questions for people. And I think another thing people can do is stay connected with people who are uh, solving complex problems over the long haul. You know, you'll get a lot of people attacking the problem. (laughs) Often, so much of what we do is about managing our own anxiety than actually helping somebody (laughs) or contributing to some of these big problems in the world. But there are these people, and I have these people in my life, who seem to kind of chug along 
you know, they don't seem to be as affected by the rest of us because they're playing the long game, right? They're able to kind of manage their anxiety a a little bit more thoughtfully about some of these hard things. And so I think having those relationships with people who've managed to do that in one way or another is really valuable. So I think that's a question people can ask themselves. Who do I know who's doing something about this or who's really thinking about this? And is that a useful inspiration for me when I get wrapped up in calming things down as quickly as possible or just avoiding everything because it feels too overwhelming and not mistaking help for uh, managing your anxiety? You know, that to me, that's the difference between reacting and responding reacting, acting quickly certainly has its place. And it's very important in some situations, but there is the long game too. And so I think it's useful to not lose sight of that. That makes sense. I mean, so reacting would be kind of like that, that nervous energy where you are just kind of jumping to something, maybe reading a heated comment section versus responding would be a more thoughtful and measured response, actually thinking of how you could help others. Is that, does that, do I have that kind of right? Yeah, I mean, getting mad at people can calm you down. Kind of sounds paradoxical, but it actually focusing on other people to blame is a great way to manage your own anxiety. But there is a heavy cost to it. We often burn out or feel like we've done something when maybe we really haven't. Oh, interesting. So with all this said, and with all the stressors in our environment right now, What do you think about professional help? When is the moment or what are signs that suggest that a person should be seeking out a professional in addition to just reading wonderful books and following those strategies? And I know as straightforward as it may seem, it can be hard to find a therapist who's a fit. So any tips on finding someone is are welcome because even I, who I feel like have tons of resource have found this challenging in the past. Yeah, well, I think above all, I'm thinking of two things. One is just somebody who's really upfront about explaining the theory or theories that they use and seems to be honest about whether they will be useful for you or not. Because, you know, I get a lot of emails or calls from folks who are very focused on relieving a particular symptom or learning a particular technique. And I tell them there are people who do that, but that's not one of the things I do with people, here's how my work uh, works and what the theory I use looks like. Because often I think sometimes therapists will not be upfront about that. And so just, can you get somebody who's really clear about what they do with people (laughs) and what the limitations are? I think that will be really helpful for you. So you're not going to waste your time or their time because not everybody is a good fit. And the second thing is I think somebody who is able to manage themselves in a responsible way, right? I'm always trying, I fail at this often, you know, I'm always trying to manage my own anxiety so that a person can do good thinking, right? And often when in stressful times, you know, even helpers like myself will become over-involved or want to fix things as quickly as possible. So I think getting a sense of can a person manage themselves well when I'm bringing my distress to the room, you know, (laughs) versus just trying to kind of keep me happy and keep me calm. That can feel good in the moment, 
But I think if you're really looking to kind of grow your own capacity for some of these things, having a therapist who's kind of able to to handle their own stuff and their own anxiety, their own reactions in a mature way is helpful. And and I think you can get a sense of that early on with folks. Those are the two, the two things I think of. I mean, I, I don't... I think if someone is thinking about getting professional help and, you know, they should pursue it. And if it isn't serving you, then you can stop. But I think asking people if it's unaffordable, you know, do you have a sliding scale? Do you have other more affordable options you can recommend? I mean, that is in our code of ethics to give you that information. So you should make people do their job <laughs> if you're worried about the cost because it's our job to connect you connect you with folks who can help or help in the way that we can and are sort of ethically bound to do. So I always encourage people to kind of push a little bit and and get that information from folks because that's part of our job. (laughs) That is great. I love that. I love that permission. So yes, if you end up finding someone, but they're inaccessible for some reason, that's a great resource. Ask around. Who else then? Who else can they recommend? So love of the week. You want me to go first? <laughs> yeah, you you had it ready. Yeah, so I read a lot of nonfiction, but I'm also a really big romance novel reader. I know romance is very popular these days. It's exploding in the publishing industry. <laughs> so right now I'm reading a wonderful historical romance called Knockout by Sarah McLean. Maybe a lot of folks have heard of her. Um, she does a podcast called Faded Mates, uh, which is about romance novels, which is wonderful. So I always enjoy having that escape from reading science books and other things. And so that's what I'm reading right now. I love it. I'm going to stick with books too, since you started with that theme. I don't think I've ever read anything by Ann Patchett I didn't like. And I'm just about to finish Tom Lake and I loved it and it was what I needed right now. So if you want kind of like a, I mean, I'm not going to say there's nothing stressful or traumatic that happens in the book. But overall, it's a very calming read as I find many of her books to be for me. So awesome. Great, great. read. I was in uh, New York a couple weeks ago in a bookstore and I heard this voice that I recognized and I turned around and it was Ann Patrick. No, no way. Yeah. It's like, I've I've heard this woman's voice before. And then I, I didn't go up. I was a little too starstruck, but Oh, that, oh, that is so cool. I've been to her, I've been bookstore. To her bookstore, but she yeah. wasn't there. Or at least she was hiding if she was there. I mean, I bought a signed copy of her book, though. That was fun. Anyway, well, this was lovely. Tell our listeners where they can find you and also what you're working on, because we might have to have you back on in the future. Yeah, people can find me on Substack. My newsletter is The Anxious Overachiever, and I send a couple free ones out a month to folks. It's a great resource if you want to learn more about Bowen Theory as well. And my next book is called True to You, How to Stop Pleasing Others and Start Being Yourself. And that comes out in July, which feels like a million years from now, but it really isn't (laughs) with St. Martin's Essentials. So, Oh, that's awesome. That sounds like a wonderful topic as well. So I will definitely be checking that out. And we'll, we'll remind our listeners of it when it comes out as well. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks, Sarah. It was fun. All right. Well, we are back and we have a listener question about some school choice stuff. Hey, that's been kind of like a theme in our questions lately. But this one's a little bit different. Do you want to paraphrase this one? Oh, sure. So this listener who lives in Canada where um, registration opens in January for kindergarten 
is debating which school to enroll her child in. They have some public choice options, so that's exciting. One school is four blocks away from her house, but it is far from her child's daycare center. She says that means we would have to enroll him in multiple child care programs because they'd be looking to get after school care at the place where he's going. The upside with a school that is close is when he's a little bit older, say, you know, sixth grade or so, he'd be able to walk home. They also have an option to go to an elementary school that is a five-minute drive away right next to his current daycare center. And the school in the center would be able to take care of all his child care. So doing the aftercare there. She also says that it would be more streamlined because a lot of his current peer group at the daycare will be going to this school. Adding to this, her child is on the autism spectrum and they have some slightly better supports at the slightly farther away school for that. However, she's worried that it is further. There will be, you know, no way to get him back without a driver, I guess, uh, if they're further away and they don't know what their work situations will be like in future years. So she doesn't know if she's thinking too short term by choosing this school that is close to his daycare versus one that is close to the house. So, Sarah, what do you think? Yeah, I think she should pick the one that's slightly farther away. And I felt like that instantly because I thought the only benefit of staying close has to do with potential benefits in many, many years for the most part. Yeah, because he won't be able to walk home by himself for a couple years at least. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And you also like, what if you change jobs between now and then and then the whole thing's a moot point and then you like made a sacrifice of potentially a lesser environment for him for this convenience later on that didn't even happen. So to me, the benefits are too long range. And I would I would instead go with what makes the most sense now. And the fact that you mentioned even like the fact that for him having some special needs and the support being even a little bit better reputation wise, it probably makes sense to go with that. So that's that's the way I would lean. What about you? Yeah, I was leaning for that as well. I mean, I think that it's wonderful to think long term. But I also think that because so much in life can change, I mean, one of the phrases that we use around here is plan tightly and then plan lightly. You can pretty much see the next two years or so and with your kid's life and your job and things like that. Past that, I mean, who knows? You can get a different job. Your partner could get a different job. Your job could move. Your job could become fully remote. You know, you could a new school could open that's like excellent for your child and that's totally different place and you want to move them to that or who even knows, right? So you can do this. I don't know how Canada works if it's possible to change your enrollment at some point, you know, if you do decide. And and I would imagine, um, you know, in the United States, especially if you do have a child with special needs, you have certain rights that you could have hearings and things like that. Even if it wasn't possible to easily move a kid, you might be able to have that happen. I don't know how Canada works, but just saying that given that you think the school is going to be better for his needs now, it's more convenient now. Just take that. If that changes, you might be able to move in the future and deal with that then. Love it. Yeah. I'm surprised I'm coming. I'm coming out against planning ahead, but in this particular case. <laughs> and coming for- against the, the one that's closer and and But it's not logistically more convenient now. It's just that it will be more logistically convenient in a few years when he can walk home on his own. So that's a different matter. Yeah. All right. Well, this has been Best of Both Worlds. Sarah has been interviewing Dr. Kathleen Smith about how everything isn't terrible and how we can 
maybe come up with some coping strategies when life seems a little bit overwhelming, but we're not necessarily dealing with, you know, clinical anxiety or depression. People are just feeling a little bit glum about life in general. So lots of helpful tips there. Uh, Lots of helpful tips there. Sorry. Yes, I can't talk this morning. We will be back next (laughs) week with more on making work and life fit together. Thanks for listening. You can find me, Sarah, at theshoebox.com or at the underscore shoebox on Instagram. And you can find me, Laura, at lauravandercam.com. This has been the Best of Both Worlds podcast. Please join us next time for more on making work and life work together. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's brand new, season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the LA Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeart Radio app. Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcasts.